This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today we're going to talk about currents. We're going to talk about the way that water flows. We're going to talk about the way that water moves. And this is an integral part of not only presenting your fly, but reading the water and even knowing where to, pre- to present your fly. So this is one of those foundational aspects of fishing that I think we sometimes take for granted. Uh, the, if we spend a lot of time on the water, I think we take for granted the fact that it, it does, there, although there is a, a very intuitive uh, aspect of reading river movement currents and things like that, there's also things that have to be learned. And so if you've been fishing for a long time, you might have some assumptions about what the water is doing uh, that have worked for you very well, but it would be helpful to kind of go back and revisit these concepts. If you are new to, to fishing uh, or, or navigating water for, for any any reason, um, then there's some of these things that might be a little lost on you, and so it's good to dive in and explore. And so as is the case with most of the content that I share on the podcast, this is not meant to be a completely exhaustive treatment of the subject. There are plenty of resources fly fishing and non-fly fishing that give exhaustive treatments of currents and hydrology and and how rivers move. And I would suggest that uh, if today is something that is intriguing to you or you feel like it's revealing some deficiencies in your awareness of how water works, to go check those out. Uh, Fly fishing obviously has great resources when it comes to this because, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, the presenting the fly in a certain spot and then choosing how to present that fly and then fishing through that presentation is wholly contingent upon the currents of that water. 
but at the same time, there are a lot of other resources. Uh, again, uh, hydrology uh, resources when it comes to everything from um, just general conservation all the way to um, you know stream stream flow sciences, um, kayaking and canoeing. There's some great resources out there that explore that because uh, people need to understand how how currents work to stay alive, not just how to to catch a fish. Uh, so those are a couple of things uh, directions maybe I can send you off to, uh, to later today after you've listened to this and you have some more questions. Questions. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that I'm going to talk about currents primarily within the context of rivers, streams, and creeks. But don't be fooled. There's currents in all bodies of water. Obviously, the ocean has currents. And there are a lot of points of continuity between how a, a wide river moves and how an ocean moves. Obviously, you have the tide, which changes things dramatically. But there are a lot of things where if you kind of get the concept in one area, you're able to, with, with a few different um, uh, formulas, uh, understand how it works in another area. Um, and then you could also talk about still water systems, uh, lakes and ponds. They aren't going to have the same kind of current that a moving body of water does, but there's still going to be a current. There's still going to be some, some movement within that water. And for still water fishing, that is an essential concept to, to understand because um, if, if you feel like you're casting out into a stagnant body of water, uh, particularly with a smaller fly, uh, it, it might seem like a very hopeless uh, endeavor and and it can be um, it, it really can be all about luck and chance if you're simply just casting out but if you understand how water moves and how it moves in a closed system uh, well it's not truly a closed system but in a more closed system than in a river then you will understand where the fish will be because they are going to be responding to where the the food is uh, so it's a, a very very helpful thing and a lot of times with with um, those bodies of water uh, wind has has a, an outsized influence on currents where whereas it's not going to have as much of an impact on something like a river so that's about four minutes of preamble but that's okay uh, for, but by quick uh, example I kind of cut my teeth uh, in, in fly fishing on spring creeks and spring creeks along with being a consistent temperature year-round uh, because of drawing from the, the, the water table of, of a spring system uh, they also had very complex uh, currents. And the reason for this is because a lot of these streams were, were relatively simple uh, when it comes to stream bottom structure. So there was not a lot of rocks. Uh, it, was, it was a very fine sand or gravel. Uh, and there was a lot of um, in-stream structure, whether it be uh, blown down trees or whether it be significant vegetation. Um, and a lot of the current uh, um, changes that, that you experience in Spring Creek come from the bends in the river and, and things like that, or man-made structures, as we, we often had in south-central Pennsylvania, being a, an agricultural area for the last few centuries. And so um, it was a relatively simple system in one respect, but it was also very complicated in another respect because you have a completely straight run of water that had multiple currents going on within uh, you know maybe a, a 25 or 50 yard stretch and it all had to do with were there any spring seeps 
Was there significant vegetation on one side of the stream? Um, was it coming off of a bend? Even if it was a bend that was 50 yards upstream, how was that bend uh, upstream impacting the, the creek? And so it was a very simple system, but it was a system that was easy to, uh, in some ways, see what was going on because the water was so clear. Um, and because the water was so clear and the water was was so kind of easy to, to, to take in all at once, you could see the variations on the surface. Um, you could It wasn't choppy. It wasn't rough. You could see where things were swirling. You could see how foam was moving on one side of the stream at one speed and another side of a stream on the uh, at a different speed, even though the stream looked relatively uniform from a structure standpoint from left bank to right bank. So... I, I appreciate the fact that that was kind of how I got my my start. Um, also, the, the water being clear was beneficial in that you were able to watch flies. Um, one of my, my favorite things that uh, I like to tell people when they're trying to learn to identify currents and how currents are impacted by everything from in-stream structure, whether that be a rock or a log or a, a um, stream uh, shape so it could be something like an undercut bank or a dip, a hole uh, in, in next to a rock or something like that, is to cast a uh, large enough fly that you can you can see and a bright enough fly that you can see. So something like a uh, a light olive woolly bugger um, is, is something you can see relatively well. Or you know go crazy, you tie up a bright yellow uh, woolly bugger and cast that upstream and allow it to tumble and see how it's impacted by those various aspects of the stream, whether they be stream um, construction or whether they be structure in the stream. And in doing so, you're able to really get an idea on what happens when your fly uh, gets into a little depression or a dip in the water. Sometimes that stream water or the, the, the main flow of the stream is flowing fast enough that there actually is a pocket of, of relatively still water underneath it if there is a little bit of a, a depression. So, you know, you can assume uh, or, or think of you know, something kind of like the size of you, like a, a rock the size of you that had at one point in time been lodged in that stream bottom, then got moved out, whether it be a flood or whether it be a man-made issue. So now you have this divot, this this human-sized divot in, in the water that might sink down a foot and a half to two feet. The water that's flowing over that is going to be faster than the water that's flowing down in that, especially if that divot is relatively recent. Of course, as erosion happens, as more rocks move, then eventually that stream is going to level out and that depression is going to be mitigated and you're going to have a consistent stream uh, speed all the way down to the bottom. But even that isn't necessarily the case because what do you have when you have water running over rocks? And, and this, these are some of the just, I'm, they're simple, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, but they're the things that once you think about it, I think, oh yeah, well, of, of course it works that way. When you have water flowing over rocks, you have resistance from those rocks. And so the, the water is oftentimes, um, almost almost all times, uh, unless there's some sort of uh, you know other, other factors at play, moving slower right on top of the stream bottom than it is in the middle of the water column. So if you have a, let's just say a three foot deep stream, that water is flowing at a different speed at the surface and it is at that second foot and it is at that third foot and the reason that's flowing at a slower speed than that third foot uh, all the way down towards the bottom is because it is running up against a surface an item an object and especially if that is in an uneven stream uh, surface so you know rocks or vegetation 
anything like that is going to create resistance and it's going to slow a fly down. Um, uh, you, you may have noticed this if you are casting up against uh, structure. Uh, your fly will slow down. It might be hard to perceive, but uh, your fly will slow down if it goes up against something like weeds. And you might think that you're hung up, but you can, if you're watching like a strike indicator or, or a bobber, as you cast upstream next to a um, or, or past a vegetation bed, as that you're watching that bobber flow downstream, even though that current is going to inevitably push that fly away from that vegetation, because it's getting close to it, you will see the, 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 the fly and the bobber slow down as you pass by that vegetation because of that resistance that that water and that current is encountering when it gets close to a surface of some sort. This is also on display when you are throwing a strike indicator versus a dry fly. Uh, you might see your strike indicator moving at a faster speed than the flotsam that's on top of the water because that fly, assuming it's heavy enough below your strike indicator, is being pulled along at a different pace than what is happening on the surface. And again, there's a numerous factors that, that can occur where it might be going faster on the surface or it might be going slower on the surface. But that's one of the issues with throwing a strike indicator, especially a strike indicator that's heavier, that's incredibly buoyant, is that it is going to potentially pull along your subsurface fly at a speed that is slightly different than what that fly should be traveling at. Honestly, uh, under even the most extreme circumstances, I don't think that is a significant issue uh, such that it is going to impact your fishing negatively. I don't think that, especially if you're talking like a two to three foot dropper off the, 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 the surface, you're not talking about a speed that is such that your hairs, your nymph is now flying at a supersonic pace or dragging along so that a trout is going to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is very, very different. Now, of course, drag, when, when drag enters into the, the picture, that changes things completely. But this, what we're talking about is assuming a, a natural drift where you are not uh, um, introducing some sort of, of slowing down or speeding up to your strike indicator or to your lead fly. And so although you may see a little bit of a difference in between what is happening on the surface and what's happening, you know, if you're talking about a three foot dropper, just a general rule, maybe a two foot, you know, two foot below and then a, a foot um, off to, and, and behind that, that, that bobber or that, uh, that dry fly just to understand that there are dynamics at play where the surface speed is a little bit different than what's happening uh, two foot, three feet below it. So currents within a stream are going to be at different speeds, top to bottom within that water column, and then of course they're going to be different side to side. Um, when water is shallower, uh, it's going to have a lot more resistance. Oftentimes, uh, shallower water is going to be on the sides of the stream uh, where that channel uh, hasn't pushed through and so that water is going to be moving slower there also. Now this is you know kind of common sense scientific observation stuff but what where does the rubber meet the road with the fishing? Well in a couple of, of primary ways. First of all uh, this helps you identify seams. What is a seam? A seam is where slower water and faster water touch each other. Why do these things matter? These matter for a couple of reasons. First and foremost is that a fish, given its op opportunities and options, is going to fin and swim in the slower water where it can also keep an eye and its nose 
into the faster water. It's going to have access to whatever water it chooses while not exerting itself as much. So you oftentimes find fish sitting in seams. You also find fish sitting in those pockets behind a large rock in a depression because they're not dumb. Why would they exert themselves you know, more than they need to if they can stay where their nose and their eyes can be in a feeding lane. So those those minute depressions, you just it's amazing how often they find you find fish in them because all they're doing in life, again, is trying to stay alive and trying to eat uh, to, to, to support that, that primary goal. And so if they can figure out a spot where they have to exert less energy, they're going to do so. So that's the f- first reason you want to look for seams. Secondly, they oftentimes collect food because uh, the, these spots are where two currents run up against each other. Um, and this is where the, the, the little floaty stuff, which included in that little floaty stuff, are food foodstuffs for the fish. They're going to be running up against these, these spots. I mean, a perfect example of this is you have these uh, scum lines on top of water and the reason why that you know little flotsam again and all sorts of bugs trout stuff uh, finds its way to those is because the the stuff in the faster current gets pushed up against the stuff in the slower current and it kind of forms a little bit of a line and the same thing happens to a certain degree subsurface so if you are able to spot these little changes in the current these are great places to fish so how, how do you do that a lot of times you know you, you if you look at a river it's not uniform across the surface. You can see the difference between the faster water and the slower water. There may even be a visible seam where it looks like a line where the current changes uh, velocity. And sometimes this just takes observation and time. Other times, uh, you know, de- depending on, on your stream, depending on the volume of water, depending on your eyesight, this might take practice. But you're able to, to see this. A, a great a great place to, to figure this out is just downstream of some sort of dam or some sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, spillway. You see the water coming over one particular point of that spillway and you will see the little eddies that come off directly to either side of it, but then you will see downstream how that faster water is abutting slower water on either side of it. Now, that's an extreme example, but that's what you're looking for as you come to any sort of of body of water. Um, There will be seams everywhere. Some of them are very small and minute, and some of them are very extreme and easy to spot. But aside from just finding fish and getting your fly in front of them, being able to identify these seams and these differences within the current is also going to aid in your casting and your presentation. Um, there's plenty of times where I have I have myself done this, and then I've seen people do it, where they're standing in a particular location and they're casting over two seams in a, in order to to put their fly where they want it to go. Now, sometimes that's out of necessity because of the depth of the water or the 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 speed with which the water is moving makes it prohibitive for for you to wade into the proper spot. But if that can be avoided, and a lot of times in a lot of small streams it can, then you're only casting over one seam. So your the belly of your fly line is not touching multiple currents. It might have to touch two because of where your fly and your leader land and then where the, the bulk of your line is. But if you can avoid it at all costs to wade into a position where you're only having to contend with maybe the, the, the seam and the speed that is receiving your, your fly and the bulk of your leader, and then probably a bigger issue 
to be able to say, okay, but where my line is sitting, where the belly of my line is, is at a different speed, at a different current. Because then what you're doing is you're only having to, to process mending and keeping your fly where, where it is, which it, it oftentimes is, is precisely what you want to be doing. You're mending at one speed, and your fly, assuming you're mending properly, you're moving that belly of that fly line using your rod tip in a way that it is not being pulled downstream or it is being held up faster than the presentation of the fly in the far current that you're fishing. You're only having to pay attention to the belly of that fly line. Whatever's happening on that fly, whatever's happening with that leader, assuming you've made a good cast and a proper cast and have made a good presentation, that's going to take care of itself. And all you're having to worry about is the strike up on that end of things and the belly of your line in that slower current immediately in front of you. If you have two seams, two currents, then it's possible. It's, it's definitely possible, but it's more work. And again, assuming you can safely wade out a little bit further... I'm a huge believer in if you are a couple of currents away from a fish, then your movement is going to be obstructed. If you are standing in really fast water, and it's maybe a 20 feet of really fast water, but you're casting up to a seam that's you know 20 feet away from you, then you're going to be totally fine, as long as you're not dancing around in your, your cleats or your spikes, and as long as you're not being super loud and your casts aren't bad. Um, I think your presence with a proper uh, approach angle, uh, you, you know, you're courting away from that fish, you're going to be totally fine, uh, even, even if you're in that next current over. Okay, well, almost 20 minutes in, and I have about seven or eight more things that I want to talk about, but I'm going to put a pause on it here. Um, it, it's worth talking about the difference between a freestone uh, stream and a, a spring creek and a tailwater and how the, uh, the, the, the vertical orientation of such a stream plays an impact. If it is a high gradient stream, how that impacts the currents. Um, it, it's worth talking about uh, streams that have had significant human uh, uh, impact, whether it be improvement projects or whether it be like an, an, an urban stream. Um, bridges. I mean, you can talk about what bridges do to currents and culverts and uh, as well as feeder creeks. There's so many different aspects of this topic, but at its most basic core element, what we're doing when we get out in the water, both for, as we said, for finding fish and presenting our fly to the fish, and then I would say thirdly, in wading and, and navigating water safely, all we're doing is determining the speed with which the water is moving so that we can do those three things well. And to appreciate and understand that the surface does tell part of the story, but that there's a lot more things going on subsurface is probably the most important simple thing to remember as we go to start reading the water. Do you have any particular questions? Again, not a scientist, not a hydrologist or geologist or anything like that, but I've spent a lot of time on water, spent a lot of time reading about water, and I would be happy to, to explore more aspects of this conversation in a future podcast or a future article on castingacross.com. So let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. Would love to hear from you. The first article this week on castingacross.com is called Stay Upright in Winter Fly Fishing. Stay Upright in Winter Fly Fishing. This is a wading and accessing the stream bank and leaving the stream uh, article. Uh, talk a little bit about technique and some ideas as well as uh, my, my gear choice. Very, very simple thing, but you, you understand and appreciate, hopefully, that not everybody gets the stuff, and there was a time when I didn't get it. There's a time that you didn't get it. So, very simple article, but hopefully something that can be helpful to people as they as they navigate winter stream banks when there's ice and snow. Wednesday's article was called "Trout and Feather: 
January 22. Trout and Feather, January 22. This month's contribution to Tim Camisa's Trout and Feather website is called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Midge? So I talk about midging. I talk about using tiny little dry flies, especially in the wintertime. Talk about approach, talk about casting, talk about gear, talk about tying. So that's a, a link on Casting Across that takes you to Trout and Feather. But then I share a couple of videos from Tim, including a very short, very simple fly tying video, and then a longer interview with Landon Mayer uh, that Tim does talking about some of his favorite guide flies. So definitely head to Casting Across to check out that article, which has a link to my article on Tim's website, as well as two of Tim's videos that you can watch embedded on castingacross.com. This week's recommendation is from the good people at Loon Outdoors. They have released a fun little gadget called Quick Draw Rod Sleeves. Quick Draw Rod Sleeves. And uh, a couple other uh, other folks make these, but theirs are, <laughs> Loons are cool because they are black and uh, yellow plaid. Kind of looks like a caution tape, which is awesome uh, because you definitely want to exercise caution when around your favorite fishing rod. But uh, although the best thing to do, and let's all agree on this, the best thing to do is have your rod completely broken down um, when you are not using it. So in its sock and in its tube, and away somewhere safe and dry when you're traveling from spot to spot. We also know that we like to pre-rig. And in doing so, you have your uh, line and leader up through your, your guides and out your rod tip, and then you have your flies tied on. And if that can't fit in your car or if that can't fit easily on your stream bake, what are you going to do? You're going to break that four-piece rod in half, and you're going to carry it uh, that way. Well, these quick-draw rod sleeves solve the problem of, of the fly getting all tangled up and your line getting wrapped around your guides and all sorts of craziness that you, we, we question, what's the physics of this? How does this happen without some sort of intervention? These kind of look like a finger trap style mesh and they slide over your rod um, and whether it's broken down into like two or three pieces and then there's a little uh, bungee attachment for your rod butt to keep everything nice and snug. So this is a great solution to having your rod rigged up uh, in multiple pieces uh, in the back of your car or as you're, you're walking to your stream bank. I've got a couple of them. I think they, they work really, really well. And uh, I'll put a link to the quick draw rod sleeves on the show notes for this podcasts page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.